Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. So this Advent season, we've been looking at the theme of wonder. And we've been looking at the life of Mary and Simeon and Anna as examples of how not only God brings wonder, but wonder also exposes us to God. Wonder is a unique reality that every human has the capacity to engage. And what it does in us is incredibly unique. Wonder teaches us to see what others miss, to savor what others devour, to hold openly what others grip tightly, and to seek desperately what others neglect casually. Or in the words of the British poet William Blake, to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. I can't think of anything more wondrous in human history than the creator of the universe to be held in the hands of his own creation. And there's something about the Christmas story that invites us to look again at something that may feel familiar and nostalgic, but to look at it with brand new eyes, to open our hearts in a brand new way. The famous composer, Beethoven, wrote most of his most popular uh, compositions later on in his life after he had gone completely deaf. One of the journal entries that he wrote as he began to lose his hearing records him holding a pencil in his mouth and then letting the pencil lie on the piano as he plays the notes and letting the vibration of the piano give him a sense of what the music was doing. His greatest accomplishment, his Ninth Symphony, was written towards the end of his life. It was the second, per, second to last performance that he ever gave in Vienna, Austria. And when he had finished his incredible accomplishment, the crowd gave a robust standing ovation. But the composer standing next to Beethoven had to turn him around because he wasn't even able to hear it. And turned around and he saw, the, he saw the, the room filled with people with their applause. He saw them. It just reminded me back to that moment that he must have been losing his ear, losing his sound or his ability to hear sound and having to rely on that pencil lying on the piano. And for me, it's a picture of what wonder does. Is it changes our ability to perceive from reason or from logic or from experience to something different. We pay closer attention to that. And that's really our hope this season is that we would approach the Christmas story not looking for something new, but rather approaching it in a new way. And so we're going to be coming to this story today in Matthew chapter 2 of the wise men, the magi, coming and seeking a star that ultimately led them to the Messiah. And how they're seeking their ability to attune their direction and attention to something that they could see in the distance but couldn't make out 
led them to the greatest discovery of their life. Matthew chapter 2 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this was heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, or out of it, for out of it you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened the treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Matthew writes his biography of the life of Jesus in a unique way. One of those ways is that he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience which makes the start of his gospel incredibly shocking to its original hearers. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that it would have been shocking that the genealogy would have been filled with prominent women and not just men. And here now in the second chapter, what we're going to find is that the people who are seeking the Messiah are astrologers and astronomers from the East, a pagan nation, not the chief priests and the scribes in Jerusalem. And that would have been a drastic contrast of who you would have imagined being the people who would have been looking for the Messiah. And one is, is filled with wonder and awe, and one, it says, were disturbed. And so Matthew here, and he'll do this for the rest of his gospel, is saying the people who you would assume would know don't. The people who have the knowledge are missing it, and those who have been rejected are actually the ones who are most open to and ready to receive who the Messiah is. We're introduced not only to these magi, which by the way, we don't know if there's three of them, like the popular song says. Uh, They are not kings either. They're knowledgeable, prominent, noble men who studied stars. And the word magi is where we get our word magic or magician from. And then we're introduced to Herod. Herod is uh, somewhat of a king. He's a governor over a large region. And he's a little bit of an outcast in terms of the Roman governors. You were not assigned to Judea unless you were kind of on the bottom of the list. But it was also a strategic move on Rome's part because Herod was a half-Jew, thinking that that would help him win over the people, and it actually did the opposite. Because he was a half-Jew, the people essentially rejected him and didn't trust him. And in his insecurity and anger, he became this incredible bloodthirsty tyrant that if any, he felt anyone was coming against him, that he would ultimately take their life, including his wives and sons and anyone close to him. And so we're introduced 
this passage is in the time of Herod. Things are heightened in terms of people's sense of security and people's fear. Then as things are becoming increasingly uncertain, so is their expectation of this Messiah, which again points out the surprise and the shock that it's these magicians, seers, astronomers from the East, rather than those who maybe should have perceived it. And so there's, there's three things we learn from this story. We're given an example, we're given a warning, and we're given an invitation. The example is to wonder and seek like the Magi did. The warning is that you can have knowledge, but you choose to do nothing about it. To know and then to stay put. And the invitation ultimately is to respond as the Magi did to bow down and to sacrifice to the Messiah. The first one is this example. There's something about these men that had postured themselves to seek out this specific time. Now, they obviously had access to Jewish uh, scriptures because it's these Jewish scriptures that made them looking for and being able to understand what this star was doing in the East. And you might be asking, how do people arguably probably a thousand miles away have access to Jewish scriptures? And the answer to that is a couple hundred years before Romans had occupation of them, Babylon did. If you ever read the book of Daniel, it tells a story of how the Jewish people were brought in captivity to the east into Babylon along with their wise men like Daniel or Meshach, or, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego along with their scriptures. And apparently they kept them. And in their scriptures it pointed out this star and when that star appears, there's something of intrigue, there's something of mystery, there's something of wonder that capture these men's heart. And so most likely with an entourage, they leave and travel hundreds of miles following the star, looking specifically for the king of the Jews. Now some of the ancient texts that they would have come upon would have been Numbers 24, verses 17, which is a story of a Moabite king named Balak, and he is hired a magi or a seer named Balaam to come and curse Israel, who's kind of, they're coming into their land. And so he hires this guy Balaam, and there's a famous story of, uh, of God stopping him in his tracks while he's on the donkey and him striking the donkey, and the donkey ends up speaking to him. It's this wild story, Numbers 22 and 23. But when Balak hires him to give a curse, he says, I can't. These are God's people. And so he gives them a series of blessings. And in the fourth blessing, in Numbers 24, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, this is during the time of Moses. Hundreds of years, there is this prophecy that out of Jacob a star will rise, and from that star a scepter, a sign of a king, will come. Or fast forward a little bit beyond that. After a series of kings have come, the nation is split, a prophet by the name of Isaiah comes, and at the end of his book, he writes that the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. 
And so again, and there's more, but there's, these are just some of the, the prophecies that they would have been privy to that would have pointed out there is a star that's going to signify one like Moses, a rescuer, a scepter, a king that were going to come. And that's the exact wording they come. Like we are here to see the king of the Jews led by this light that nations are brought to. Now, I want to pause right here because at the very beginning of the story, I think we're given an example that Matthew intends for us to follow. It's this example that's given by people you would least like to expect. And this is my first encouragement to us as a church. Are we a people who seek? Are we the type of, the, of people who are intrigued, who are curious, people who are drawn to the mystery of who God is? Or have we become complacent? settled? Or is there something that continually wants to posture ourselves? Maybe you're watching this and you're not a Christian. You're tuning in to try and figure out who this Jesus person is. Can I I commend you that simply by the act of seeking, you are following the example that Scripture sets for us. You're desiring truth. And many of us who are watching this or listening to this can become complacent that we think we know enough about God or we've heard enough. And I think, again, the Magi give us an example that we are to be people who consistently seek out God. Blaise Pascal said, If God exists, not seeking God must be the gravest error imaginable. If one decides to sincerely seek for God and doesn't find God, the lost effort is negligible in comparison to what is at risk in not seeking God in the first place. I remember in my um, late teens, early 20s, um, I had made a, a very strong decision to start following Jesus after having been given a, a very beautiful faith that I saw modeled by my parents. And there came this time where I just realized that it, 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 I could see I believed this because it was handed to me. And I went on this journey that took years of just trying to find out what truth is. And it was, to be honest, frightening to hold things in terms of just trying to seek truth But at the same time, it yielded maybe the most beautiful fruit of my faith of understanding that when I sought, and when I sought truth, when I sought wonder, what I came to after everything that I looked through, everything that I read, every lecture that I attended is that it was Jesus that I was looking for. Um, I've gone on multiple um, windows or likenesses of that journey throughout my life, and every single time it brings me back to there is no one like who Jesus is. And the, the story doesn't only give us the example of seeking, it also gives us the alternative of people who don't seek. So the Magi show up, there's a long journey, um, they're notable, they're brought into the court of the, of the king of the entire region, the governor of the entire region, and they're asking him, where is the king of the Jews? That's a bold statement to ask the, the currently reigning king. And so Herod sends away the chief priests and the scribes, the people who know the Bible better than anyone else, and they search the scripture and they come back to Herod and they read to him, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem of Arephath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. They read a version of this and then they stop 
And then they pick up in 2 Samuel 5, 2, when it says, And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people and you will become their ruler. And so what they bring to Herod is um, this, this Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. And he's going to be the ruler, the one we've been waiting for. He's going to shepherd his people. Now, now, now catch this, how wild this is. It's these pagan astrologers from the east who come with the, the prompting of, let's, I want to find this. They don't know where to go. And it's the scribes and the chief priests who says, we know exactly where he's coming from. It's Bethlehem, just a few miles south of Jerusalem. And at that moment, the Magi leave and go to Bethlehem. And here's the shocking thing. The scribes and the chief priests, the ones who were supposed to be waiting for the promised Messiah, do absolutely nothing. They stay right there. Can you imagine the one they've been waiting for for generations? It, the signs are lining up that he's arrived and they know exactly where he is and they don't go to Bethlehem. And that, where we have an example in the Magi, we have a warning in the chief priests and the Pharisees. And this will follow Matthew's gospel the entire way, that the people who have the right knowledge are not always the people who have the right obedience. I'm going to say that again. Right knowledge and right reason, right doctrine and right theology does not necessarily equate to right living and a right heart and right obedience. And this is a warning for us that maybe you're watching this and you find a level of security and safety in terms of like, well, I, I know all the right things. Or I, I grew up what I believe to be the right faith or tradition. If that is not resulting in you shifting and changing towards obedience and towards wonder and towards amazement and towards worship, then your knowledge has essentially betrayed you. This is Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. I think specifically in our Western culture that values learning and information so much, we cannot be duped into thinking that that somehow is the way to God. Our way to God is through, like it says in 1 Corinthians, loving response, loving obedience. Would we take the warning that's offered us there? And lastly, going back to the Magi, we're given an invitation. Their response here is one that we should take note of. It says, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed, which actually is, NIV translates that word. It's actually the word joy. It's joy exceedingly overjoyed. It's this, they were elated. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they, listen to this, there's three verbs. They bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So this, this example leads to this invitation. The, the, the wise men, when they finally found Jesus, there's three responses, three postures that they gave us that I think that we should slow down and pay attention to. They bowed down in worship. They opened up their treasures and they presented him with those gifts. They bowed down, they opened up, and they presented. And when we 
discover and find Jesus who has actively been pursuing us, there's really only three responses that are appropriate. Number one is we bow down, which is a posture of surrender. It's a posture of humility, of lowering ourselves. Secondly, they opened up their treasures, meaning all that they had, they opened up, they loosened their grip, they made available to this infant king. And the last thing they did is they didn't just open it up, they ultimately presented him with it. They gave generously of, of what? These three gifts, frankincense, gold, and myrrh. Gold is, a, is a, throughout all of scripture is a sign of royalty. The gold represents Jesus' kingship, his royal identity. Frankincense represents his deity. In the Old Testament, this was used in the sanctuary to offer to God. And, and the last one is probably most peculiar. It's myrrh. And myrrh represents Jesus' humanity. The next time we see myrrh show up is in Mark's gospel that it was what was mixed with wine that was given to Jesus on the cross. And think about that. That part of the gifts that were presented to him were pointing to Jesus' ultimate purpose. And there's one other way this does this. At the very beginning, it says that the Magi were seeking the King of the Jews. Can you think of, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, the next time that phrase is used? It's used for the sign that was created that hung over Jesus on the cross. We are here to search for the King of the Jews. And the King of the Jews is exactly who they found. And it is exactly the reason why he was crucified. And so this baby, this infant that came, was no ordinary child. It was the incarnation of the love of God, the very Son of the Father coming into the world not just to exist before a divine purpose, and that was to lay down his life. It says in the Gospels, that is why I came. And there's something prophetic about their gifts. There's something prophetic about their posture of surrender because it was somehow mirroring what Jesus was going to do for us. It was a surrenderance in massive proportions so that we could be brought in to him. I think about even on the cross, how it was given a staff, all of these mocking images. But you look back at Numbers 24, it says a scepter will rise up out of Judea. And so all of these foretellings and prophecies and expectations around the Messiah becoming a king ultimately corresponded in Jesus humiliated and tortured and hung on the cross for us. Why is that so important for us? Because I think in a small way, the Magi were showing us a level of sacrifice that is absolutely appropriate when we realize the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. You see, this, this, doesn't this work in relationships? If you've ever been a part of a deep friendship, um, a healthy family, um, when you, if you've ever fallen in love before, uh, there's this thing of as this person is giving of themselves, you are prompted to give back. And that's the beauty of the nativity story of Advent. That's the wonder that's created is that there is no amount of sacrifice 
that will ever be appropriate in proportion to the level of sacrifice that Jesus came to give to us. And so what do we do? We continue to seek him and we continue to offer up like the, like the Magi, who we are, our gifts and who, and we bring that before the Lord. Jacques Philippe, who's a Catholic writer out of France says this, in order that sacrifice might be authentic and engendered peace, it must be total. We must put everything without expectation into the hands of God, not seeking any longer to manage or to save ourselves by our own means, not in the material domain, nor the emotional, nor the spiritual. We cannot divide human existence into various sectors, certain sectors where it would be legitimate to surrender ourselves to God with confidence and others where, on the contrary, we feel we must manage exclusively on our own. And one thing we know well, all reality that we have not surrendered to God, that we choose to manage by ourselves without giving fully to God, will continue to make us more or less uneasy. The measure of our interior peace will be that of our abandonment, consequently of our sacrifice and surrender. I'm going to read that last line again. The measure of our interior peace is connected to the level of our abandonment, our sacrifice, and our surrender. So I just want to encourage you, as we are a week away from Christmas, a week away from the the moment, the inauguration of the great sacrifice of God, what would it look like for you to seek Him in wonder and to sacrifice to God in worship? What is He asking of you? Just sit, just sit with that in this moment of the next few days. Is, is the Lord asking for access into your life? Is He asking for you to surrender, to relinquish the grip that you've had around the things or the situations or the control of your life? Because when we do that, like the Magi, we find the treasure. We find the peace that we're looking for. And that is the beauty that Jesus says, for those who lose their life will find it in me. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the example of the Magi who would seek you. Without all the answers, they didn't know everything, but what they knew they followed. Lord, we ask that you would guard us. Guard us from just knowing a bunch of stuff and doing absolutely nothing about us. And Holy Spirit, we're asking that like the Magi, we would find ourselves in your presence and offering not gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but offering up our time, our devotion, our finances, our trust, offering up our life, Lord, that we would believe that the only life to have is the one that we have fully surrendered to you. Thank you that you not only invite us into that, you modeled that for us. We worship you, King Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Thank you.